Last Sunday evening, we began a little three-part sermon miniseries entitled, And Man Said, Let Us Make God in Our Image According to Our Likeness. In that first and foundational lesson, we discussed how the first and foremost thing that we need to understand and, and to truly instill in our hearts and our minds, not only for our earthly worship and the purposes of this sermon series, but also for our eternal lives themselves, is this. That there is absolutely nothing and no being on earth, under the earth, in the physical universe, or even in the spiritual realms themselves that is like God. There is absolutely nothing like God. God is not like anything. Now, some will say, well, Jesus. Well, understand when I'm talking about God, I'm talking about the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Romans 1.20 and Colossians 2.9. He, that is God, has no peer. He has no equal and is, again, completely and absolutely unlike anything or anyone in the universe, whether known or unknown, whether seen or unseen, whether, whether created or eternal. God is forever utterly unique. He is unique in his presence, unique in his power, his essence, his wisdom, his excellence, his righteousness, his existence, as well as every other facet of his incredible, infinite being. God stands alone. As we closed last Sunday night, we saw how there is nothing in the universe, therefore, that makes the one who created it all much angrier than for his creation to turn away from him and to worship that which they have created in their own flawed, feeble human minds. For them to turn away from him and worship that which they have created in their own thoughts, in their own foolish imaginations. And so it makes perfect sense with everything that we covered last week when we, when we saw that the first of the Ten Commandments, the first thing God would tell his people in the Ten Commandments is, you shall have no other gods before me because there is no other God. And he also said, you shall not make any carved image of anything anywhere, in the skies, wherever, on the earth, you shall not make a carved image to worship because God isn't like any of those things. There's nothing else like God. We read that in Exodus 19, 25 through chapter 20 in verse 6. And yet, and yet, what is the first thing God's people did while Moses went back up on the mountain to get more instruction from God? What did they do? They made an idol. They made an image of an earthly creature and worshipped it. They made God into an image of something more like they wanted him to be or thought him to be 
something a little more familiar, and they worshiped him the way they wanted to, Exodus chapter 32. And it pretty much, I realize it's a little sarcastic, we found a slide, I thought that's pretty close. Okay, we all witnessed Jehovah parting the Red Sea, but I say let's ditch him for this fine fellow, and that's pretty much what they did. Can you imagine the absurdity, the, the, the sheer absurdity after what they had been through was seeing the parting of the Red Sea to throw all their, their gold in here and just, just, just make a cow. They made God into a cow. Let's be real. That's what they did. They made God into a cow. A calf. And as we shall see tonight, and I hope every one of you are back tonight, as we shall see tonight, today's modern man isn't a whole lot different. We talked last week about how this was called a great sin in the Bible, a great sin. It was a great sin, Exodus 32. Why? Well, because it showed a total lack of love and loyalty, a total lack of faith and fear, and a total lack of trust and devotion for the one living, almighty, unique God of creation. The unique God of creation who had delivered them, who had done these mighty works, who had, who had plagued the gods of Egypt, shall we say, they made him into a cow. Said, this is it, this is God, this is your God. Ridiculous. And God did not tolerate it. God, if you read Exodus 32, God didn't tolerate it. They might have celebrated it, but God didn't tolerate it. That's very important. Okay? And God does not change. God has never tolerated that, and he's never going to, no matter what modern man of any age, being the modern man of that age, decides to try to make God over into. From that point on in the scriptures, God made sure to repeatedly emphasized throughout the ages, this was intolerable. After the death and destruction God plagued his people with, according to Exodus 32, for their seeking to make him over into something more familiar that they thought he might be according to their own imaginations, we would see this again and again. Turn to me in your Bibles this morning, for example, to Numbers chapter 25, if you would. Numbers chapter 25, beginning at verse 1. Now Israel remained in the Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. Now Numbers 25 and verse 2. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. He had said, you'll have no other gods before me. None of these pagan false gods, none of these gods that are made in the image of anything on earth, don't do it. They did it. And God's angry. Then the Lord said to Moses, verse 4, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. If you don't think God was upset, he said, hang them high. Not really, but hang them. I want them hung. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. 
And indeed, one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. He brought this Midianite woman in there, one of these from, from the false nation, from the nations and the false religions around them. Now when Phinehas, the son of Eliza, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he arose from among the congregation, took a javelin in his hand, went in after the man of Israel into his tent, and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through her body. Yep, that's pretty serious. So the plague was stopped among the children of Israel. Those who died in the plague were 24,000. 24,000. 24, that is eight times the population of the last little town that I preached in. 24,000. What was their sin? Being joined to other gods, worshiping other gods rather than the God of creation. That was their sin. He mentions this later, Moses does in the recap in Deuteronomy 4, please turn there. Deuteronomy chapter 4. God abhors this. Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning at verse 15, we would read Moses kind of recapping. We know Deuteronomy is kind of a, uh, a recapping of the history of Israel before they enter into the promised land. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 15, Moses warns, he says, Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. It is so key. Highlight that in your Bible. You saw no form. God did not appear to you in a form because God is unlike anything that you've ever seen. And you've got to remember, there's no form that you saw. God doesn't want you making images in a form. So God purposed not to come to you in his form, which you couldn't have stood anyway. No form. Okay? Chapter 4 now in verse 16. Lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female. God doesn't want you doing that, so he didn't come to you in a form. The likeness of any animal that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. God didn't come to you in a form because he's not like any of those things, and he does not want you making gods in your own mind or forcing him into a pattern that is not him. And take heed, verse 19. Listen closely, Moses says. Lest you lift your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun, the moon, the stars, and all the hosts of the heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them. One more place in the Bible that show you that feelings will lead you astray. It is not about what you feel. It is about what God said. One more place that proves it. When you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the people under the whole heaven as a heritage. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be his people, an inheritance as you are to this day. Verse 23. Take heed to yourselves lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord our God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. 
go to the next chapter with me, and, and I want to set the stage strong for this. If you go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 5, we see here that Moses calls all of Israel, and he's giving them the commandments. And again, we would notice that in verse 5, God on that mountain was so scary that the people were afraid. They didn't go up onto the mountain. He said, here's what, here's what that God who caused that fire and, and everything you were so afraid of, that, that incredible, infinitely powerful God told me. Verse 6, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that's in the heaven above, the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. That was the very first thing God told them. You know, we get caught up in the thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, and, and those sorts of things. And, those are important, yeah, they're part of the tent. But the very first thing God had to tell those people is don't you dare. Don't you dare. Because I ain't like anything you've ever seen. Just by way of mention and not reading, in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 7 through 21, Moses would once again remind them of their great sin of making and seeking to worship the golden calf that they had formed according to the vain and futile imaginings of their own feeble mortal minds in Exodus 32. Brethren, the fatal lunacy of, of this idea is constantly reported and reflected throughout the rest of the scriptures as we repeatedly see the wrath of God poured out upon people who would dare to continue to willfully forget his word, ignore his instruction, and seek to disrespect and disobey and dethrone him as God by making him over into and worshiping something that they've created in their own minds or in a way that they have created within their own minds. It, it, it continues on and on and on. Deuteronomy chapter 27 and verse 15 says, Cursed is the one who makes a carved or molded image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. We get pretty upset about what we call an abomination today. Rightfully so. If God says anything's an abomination, it's an abomination. But what we need to understand is that word abomination is not in reference to just one sin. It is an abomination to make God in our image. For those of you taking notes, just let me say very quickly, 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 25 through 33, we see that Jeroboam the king he sets up two golden calves, 
One in Bethel, one in Dan. He appoints priests the way he wants to, kind of like God did, but not exactly the same as God had decreed, from, certainly not from the tribe of Levi, but he sets up days and, and feasts like the ones God had, but they were not the ones God had. They were like the ones God had. And, and he has the people go to worship two golden calves. One isn't bad enough, now I've got to have two, right? He doubles their sin. That's in 1 Kings, chapter 12. If you read all the way through the rest of 1 Kings and all the way up into 2 Kings and you get to chapter 17, you will notice in verses 7 through 23 that the reason God cast his people out of his sight forever or cast them out of his sight for, for then was because of one thing. Both Israel and Judah had followed in the footsteps of Jeroboam and worshiped according to the way Jeroboam had set up with the golden calves and according counterfeit religion. It was like God had set up, but it wasn't. These all denote the utter failure and the fatal foolishness of seeking to recreate the God of heaven into the image of something else or less that, that mere mortals dream up in their minds. God simply cannot be duplicated, replicated, or somehow reformulated or represented into anything that we think or want or hope or maybe personally desire or picture or imagine him to be other than exactly what his word says he is. That's the only thing we got. If we want him to be something else, that doesn't change who he is. If we think he's something else other than what his word says, that doesn't change God. He's not like anything. And yet the tragedy is that mankind has always sought to make and sought to worship and sought to even sacrifice their own lives and the lives of their loved ones on the altars of the gods they have created in their own heads that only exist in their feeble, futile human imaginations. They've always done it. You say, we wouldn't do that today. I hope you're here tonight. They've always done it. I once did a, an internet search looking for some of the man-imagined gods mentioned in the scriptures. There are a lot of false gods mentioned in the scriptures. And so I did this internet search, and we don't have time for me to put them all up here. But I'm going to show you in a moment what I found. But what I want you to notice is that with each one of them, what did God say? Don't make it male, female, bird, fish, etc. Every single one of them of these so-called gods made in man's minds was made either in the image of a man, a woman, or an animal simply with exaggerated features, that's all. Exaggerated features and powers, whether physical or mental, but exaggerated powers. Some of the gods, like you'll see Zeus pictured, was, was what every man wanted to be. It looked like an NFL linebacker, only bigger. Just, just it's always humans on, on steroids of some sort, always humans that had some incredible exaggerated power. In fact, I can't show you all the pictures I found because some of them are not appropriate in a church setting. 
I'm only going to give you a few in alphabetical order, and in every case it is easy to see that the people did exactly what God said not to. They made God in their image, as the title of this little sermon miniseries suggests, and man said, let us make God in our image. The first picture I found was a Dramalek. He was a god of Sepharvaim, to whom people sacrificed their children in the fire. Two arms, two legs, hands. Now, now he's got some animalistic features, but walks upright like a man, got wings like a winged creature that flies. This is the god to whom some people sacrificed their children in the fire, according to God's word in 2 Kings 17, 31. And I put these, these passages up here on every one of these slides so you can go back and see that these are actually, quote unquote, gods that are mentioned in the Bible. And they're both in the Old Testament as well as the New. I didn't make any of these up. Stan Lee could not have made some of these up, okay? I'm just saying, well, maybe he could, but anyway. Then there's Ammon-Ri, or Ammon of No. The Egyptian sun god. Please notice once again, human form, exaggerated features. This is from Jeremiah 46, 25 and Nahum 3 and verse 8. Another man-made in their own minds and imagination gods, God was Anamalek, meaning Anu is king. Anu was the Babylonian god of the sky, and as you look, the, look at this, you can see the wings. Again, another god to whom people, people actually sacrificed their children to this thing. People actually took their newborn children and burned them alive. Real fire, real kids, burned them alive to this thing. How do I know that? I know that because it says that in 2 Kings chapter 17 and verse 31. And then, this is the conservative picture of Artemis, as she was known among the Greeks, or Diana, as she was known among the Romans. She was the good goddess of moonlight and nature. Moonlight and we, in our enlightened society, would never even refer to a being that is nature personified or anything, would we? Anybody ever heard the term Mother Nature? I'm just saying. She was the protectress of young girls, and she was believed to assist at childbirth. This was the Diana, or Artemis, of the Ephesians, which is referred to in Acts chapter 19, verses 22 through 34. You'll recall that's where Demetrius, the silversmith, raised such an opposition to the Apostle Paul because Paul, in verse 26 of Acts 19, had rightfully, quote, persuaded and turned away many people, saying they are not gods which are made by hands. Paul came out and said, they're not gods, people. It's an idol. It's not real. In fact, the Diana of the Ephesians beliefs, and might I say fantasies and imaginations, had such multiplied and exaggerated human female features as to be improper to show in a church setting. Moving on. Then there's Baal. He don't look all that impressive, does he? When I saw these things they dug up of Baal, I thought, really? Really? I, I've seen, I, I've walked through the toy department in Walmart and seen something look more awesome than that. That's the mighty Baal, huh? 
Baal, the Canaanite word for master lord, he was supposedly the son of El, that is E-L, who was supposedly the father of the gods. He was worshipped as the farm god who gave increase to family, fields, flocks, and herds. And he's also identified with the storm god, Hadad. Baal's name is seen throughout scripture, isn't it? In different forms. Well, do you notice that in these archaeological finds that human features, male or female, isn't he? Exactly what God said not to do. Then there's these two. Castor and Pollux. They are supposedly, in man's minds and imaginations, the twin sons of the god Jupiter. Castor was a horse trainer, and Pollux was a boxer. Their supposed father god Zeus, due to their great brotherly love, set them in the sky as the constellation we call the twins or what we call the morning and evening star. Didn't God say something about when you look up and you're, you're uh, thinking about worshiping the starry host? Don't do that. Yeah, we, we read that earlier, didn't we? We did. Unger's Bible Dictionary goes on to say they were worshiped. These imaginary gods. They were worshiped at Sparta and Olympia with Hercules and other heroes. As gods of the sea, they were worshiped especially at Ostia, the harbor town of Rome. And again, you might remember the ship that the Apostle Paul sailed on from Malta bore their sign, Acts 28 and verse 11. Can you imagine that's your God? That's your God. Think about how it was formed. Somebody took a chisel and chiseled these things out. That's your God, a hunk of rock. Really? Then there's this one. From Psalm 106, verses 34 through 43. Actually, the quote that's up there is from verses 36 through 39 of Psalm 106. They served their idols and were ensnared by them. They sacrificed the demons, their own sons and daughters, shedding innocent blood, the blood of their own sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, consecrating the land with bloodshed. They defiled themselves by their actions and became adulterers by their conduct. People, people, actually like mom here with the baby and these, this is what they did. I can't even, that makes my flesh crawl. I don't know about you, but it just makes my skin crawl. Other forbidden gods made in the image of man in scripture would include Dagon. You remember Dagon? Judges chapter 16, 23 and 4, 1 Samuel 5, 1 through 5. You, you'll recall the story real quickly when you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 5 about the temple of Dagon. Hermes was the Greek messenger god. Doesn't look human, right? Of course he looks human. He's made into, because they keep making God over in, into humans and what they understand. God said, don't do that. I'm not like that. But they did that. The Greek messenger God, also the God of commerce, mining, crops, and roads. He's a busy fella. But he's mentioned in Acts 14, 12. These aren't just Marvel comic creations. These are man-made in the minds and imagination of men, gods that people actually prayed to, sacrificed their kids on the altar of, that are mentioned in the Bible. 
That's why the reference is there for you to check out. Then there's Moloch, Leviticus 21 through 6, Jeremiah 32, 36 through 35. And once again, Moloch was one that they'd burn their children alive to. Then there is Nebo, or Nebu. Find him in Isaiah 46, 1 and 2, and this archaeological find that is now in a museum. The son of Marduk Ray. Isn't it amazing what men's imaginations will do? Isn't it crazy what people's imaginations will do? To think that you can take the God of the universe who's unlike anything and has no peer or equal and, and that somehow Instead of worshiping him according to what his word says, you can directly contradict what his word says and form your own God made in your own image according to your own desires, your own wants, whether it is, whether it is the goddess of young girls, the goddess of fertility, or, or the god of the crops and fields. You can make any god you want, and that's God. Can I offer one word of personal opinion? To me, that's crazy. I know that's my opinion, you don't have to accept it. But to me, it's still crazy. We move on. Nehushtan, the bronze serpent, which the Israelites turned into an object of worship, 2 Kings 18.4. Now, obviously, these pictures were not taken of the real thing because they didn't have cameras then. These are artists' representations. They may not be 100% accurate, but they give you the idea. Nergal, the Babylonian sun god. Oh, that's all we need, right? 2 Kings 17 in verse 30. Yes, he's mentioned in the Bible. Yes, he was the God of people that did not know nor accept the word of the one true God of all creation. Then there's Zeus. Good old Zeus. Depictions of him as the father of the gods and this incredible, unique, physical, but he's just a man whom, you know, that, that every man maybe wants to look like. That's, that's what they did. That's what their gods were. And he's mentioned, of course, in Acts 14, 8 through 18, in, in 1935. Brethren, all of these, quote, unquote, gods are nothing more than earthly beings with magnified mental and physical traits and features and powers and abilities. Exactly as God said, don't you dare do that. The beginning of the Ten Commandments. And we stand back today, and, and you may think, why is he going through all of this? Well, what's the point? What's the point for us? I mean, we're way beyond that. We're enlightened. That's so foolish. It's part of the ancient world that didn't know any better. And of course, in our, in our enlightened society today, we, we would never presume to even call or even picture or even imagine or sense or portray as a god Anything that is simply a human or earthly being, just simply with magnified powers or personalities, we're too smart for that. We wouldn't even joke about such a thing. Would we? Anybody know what this is? This is the charging bull. May I read to you about the charging bull? Charging bull, which is sometimes referred to as the Wall Street bull, is a bronze sculpture that stands in the financial district in Manhattan, New York City. Now, certainly nobody today would worship money, right? This 7,100 pound sculpture 
stands 11 feet high. He's big. Measures 16 feet long. The oversized sculpture depicts a bull, the symbol of aggressive financial optimism and prosperity, leaning back on its haunches, with its head lowered as if ready to charge. The sculpture is both a popular tourist destination, destination which draws thousands of people a day. Thousands of people a day. Don't you, wish, don't you wish this congregation could draw thousands of people a day? The bull does. Just saying. As well as being one of the most iconic images of New York, the bull was cast in Brooklyn at a cost of some $360,000 to create, cast, and install following the 1987 stock market crash as a symbol of the strength and power of the American people. It only cost a third of a million. As soon as the sculpture was set up, it became an instant hit. It is one of New York City's most photographed artworks and has become a tourist destination in the financial district. Its popularity is beyond doubt, a New York Times article said of the artwork. Visitors constantly pose for pictures around it. The statue's popularity with tourists has international appeal. One 2007 newspaper report noted a ceaseless stream of visitors from India, the United Kingdom, South Africa, Venezuela, and China, as well as the U.S. One visitor told the newspaper reporter this was the whole reason for his visit. So I'm going to leave China or New Zealand. I'm going to buy tickets. I'm going on vacation. I'm all, and the thing I'm going for, the highlight of my trip, I'm going to go see the bull. Really? According to a Washington Post article in 2002, people on the street say you've got to rub specific parts of the bull for good luck. According to a 2004 New York Times article, passersby have rubbed those areas to a bright gleam. You want good luck in your financial dealings? Rub the bull. And people have done it to the point that specific parts of the bull are polished to a bright gleam. Do I think that everybody who goes there and rubs the bull believes that they're going to have fun? No, I don't believe that. Do you believe that every single one of them doesn't? No, I don't believe that either. But here's the thing, here's the question. How much has man really changed from the day that Moses came down off of Mount Horeb in Exodus 32? How much have we really changed from that day when it comes to making our own gods in our own image or according to our own earthly liking and then seeking, pursuing, serving, worshiping, and giving it a life and personality of its own, even if all of that only exists in our own mind. How different are we really? What kind of earthly things are we willing to worship? What does it mean to worship? To worship means to love, is that fair? To honor, right? To serve. To give yourself to, isn't that what worship is? 
How many earthly things are we willing to worship, to love, to honor, to revere, to idolize so much that we seek and pursue and choose to dedicate ourselves and devote ourselves to seeking after them far more than God simply because we have placed some higher earthly value on them than on the unseen and eternal God of heaven. Which of those things up there has modern man in so many cases, or, or which of those things have maybe we been tempted to give ourselves so much of ourselves to at the expense of giving ourselves to God to pursue, to love, to the point that we pursue them or love them or serve them or seek them more than God? That's idolatry. And so finally this morning, What's been the point of all this? What's been the point of all this groundwork? What's been the point of all these scriptures? What's been the point of, of all these pictures? What has been the point of all of this research and these two initial lessons in this sermon mini-series? What's the point? Tonight's wrap-up, the contemporary application lesson is the point. And I hope that all of you are back tonight to really consider how everything we said in these last two sermons applies to us today. How mankind today still makes God in his own image. Because it applies so in depth, it is almost unbelievable. I will leave it at that. Ask you that if there's anybody here this morning who's not a member of the Lord's church, who is not made pursuing God and worshiping God and seeking God and serving God and living for God a priority in your life. That all begins when you understand that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the very same God who said you will have no other gods before me. When you are willing to confess Jesus as Lord, when you are willing to repent of your sins, repent of chasing after the things of the world, repent of, of chasing those things and seeking to serve yourself and the physical world around you and choose instead to be baptized to wash away that old man of sin, to arise to walk in newness of life with, with a whole new set of priorities, a whole new God to serve, not yourself but the God of the heavens to walk in that newness of life and then to continue to remain steadfast until death. If you've never been baptized for that reason, or if maybe you have, but you have found yourself kind of leaning back, maybe, maybe something else has, has begun to overshadow God in your life. Maybe you realize as you sit here this morning, I'm seeking and pursuing this a lot more than I am God, or I'm giving this more time and energy than I am God. Maybe you just need the prayers of the saints. Maybe you don't need to come down front for the prayers of the saints, but maybe in, in the pew this morning, you need to tell God, God, I need to rearrange my priorities because there's only one God and you are unlike anything else you gave your son for me. And I really want to serve you first and foremost and always, alone, from now on. There's one God, and you're it. Have you told God that lately? Do you need to tell God that? If so, and there's any way we can assist you with that, please come to the front right now as we stand and as we sing.